Well, as, Tom, uh, as Tim mentioned, um, this is a very special day in the life of Redemption Gilbert because we get to publicly acknowledge and say thank you to our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, for, for 22 years of ministry at this church. And one of the very unique attributes of Tom as a senior pastor was his recognition early on in his ministry that at some point a transition of leadership would have to take place and if the church was to thrive in the midst of that transition there needed to be a plan in place. Well it was about five years ago that that Tom and the elders decided to implement that plan. The internal transition would begin immediately. Tom's idea was to distribute his responsibilities among four leaders. Tom would continue to be the primary preaching pastor, while Tim, as the executive pastor, would lead and mentor the other pastors. Tyler would manage our community and global relationships, and I would be responsible for our administrative staff and the day-to-day office functions. That's why the three of us are up here today. We have had the privilege of serving side-by-side with Tom in a a very unique way, kind of a a four-headed senior pastor. So each of us is going to speak today from our perspective of watching and learning from Tom. I personally have learned a ton in watching Tom as he has led this church and taught me about leadership. But I've also learned something of equal, if not greater value, from watching him. And and that is how to love my wife, as Paul commands in Ephesians 5. While Tim and Tyler will predominantly speak about Tom's leadership and his phenomenal abilities, I'd like to speak to you about his love, specifically for his wife, Susan, who died in October of 2011 after a courageous seven-year battle with inflammatory breast cancer. Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Paul makes it very clear that the relationship between husband and wife is to be modeled on the relationship between Christ and his church. He makes the love of Christ for his church the pattern of conduct of the husband in relationship to his wife. The key word that Paul uses in his exhortation for husbands is not leadership. It's love. Instead of commanding us to love our wives... To lead our wives, he instructs us to to love our wives. Even in the Old Testament, in the Song of Solomon, probably the most personal book on marital love, 
although the husband is a king, the dominant feature in his relationship with his wife is not authority, it's love. Throughout all of Scripture, when it comes to a husband's role, loving takes priority over leading. Why? Well, because our Lord's motive in winning his bride, the church, was love. And that love was manifested in servanthood by the sacrificial giving of himself at Calvary. Therefore, the kind of love that God requires of husbands requires sacrifice. Men, we cannot love our wives the way Christ commands us without sacrifice. And that's exactly what I watched Tom Schrader do as he sacrificially loved his wife, especially in those very difficult last two years. I watched Tom as he sacrificed his time, as he spent countless hours at chemo treatments, at radiation therapies, at oncology appointments, at surgeries, at office visits. He gave up playing golf. He cut back on his hours at the church. He canceled preaching opportunities that he had at other churches so that he could be there at every appointment, every consultation, every treatment. That's sacrificial love. I watched Tom sacrifice his rightful place in ministry here at Redemption. He chose not to attend one of the most important days in the church's history, our 20th anniversary celebration, because he felt that Susan was too sick for him to leave her. He had every right to ask someone to stay with her so he could bask in the recognition of 20 years of leadership at this church, leadership that took this church in 1991 from a few families to thousands of people in 2011. But Tom knew that Susan was most comfortable with him there. So while we gathered with thousands of worshipers to thank God for all that he had done for us as a church, the man who most deserved to be there stayed at home with his wife, who could barely stay awake long enough to do more than acknowledge that he was there with her. That's sacrificial love. Tom gave up enjoyable and financially lucrative speaking engagements at exciting places with other influential evangelical leaders to stay with Susan. Tom thrives in those kinds of environments. He's a highly respected and sought-after speaker nationally. But because Susan was too weak to travel, because he didn't want to leave her for any extended period of time, even though Sarah and Haley, their two daughters, are extremely capable, both have medical backgrounds, and could have easily stayed with her. Again, Tom knew that Susan was most comfortable with him there. So he gave up free travel, pretty substantial honorariums, and all of the kudos that come along with being in those kinds of circles. To sit at home with his wife, who at that point was sleeping 20 hours a day. 
That's sacrificial love. I could give you more examples, but you get the idea. Tom modeled the sacrificial Christ-like love a husband is commanded to give his wife, and he did it in the most difficult circumstances. And not only was that love selfless, but he did it recognizing that there would be nothing coming back in return. Susan was too sick to reciprocate. And if you'll notice in Ephesians 5, when Paul commands his husbands to love their wives, there are no conditions placed upon that love. There is no quid pro quo. It doesn't say, if she submits to you, then you love her. It doesn't say, if she's loving towards you, then you love her. It just says, love her. And that's what Tom did. He often takes us to 1 Corinthians 13 when he's preaching and and the subject of love comes up. It's, of course, the great love chapter in the Bible. And in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, Love does not seek its own way. In other words, it doesn't pursue self-gratification, but it practices self-denial. And that's exactly what I watched Tom Schrader do. Deny himself for the sake of his wife. Tom showed me how to love my wife sacrificially. The second thing that Paul says in that passage is that husbands are to love our wives as our own bodies. In other words, tenderly caring for our wives as we would our physical bodies. Time after time after time, I watched Tom gently guide Susan along a hallway or or into a chair, or, or in and out of a car, knowing that even the slightest bump would cause her severe pain. Tom cared for Susan the way he cared for his own body. Tom modeled biblical love, and it's something that each of us as husbands, or even those of us who plan to be husbands, need to learn. We don't need to be exhorted to lead because if we'll love sacrificially, seeking the benefit and the blessing of our wives, even at our own expense, it expresses itself as servant leadership. That's what I watched Tom do for Susan. And honestly, that's what I'm watching him do now for his beautiful new bride, Sandy. Now, if you're sitting out there thinking, There's no way. I can't do that. I'm just too selfish. Well, you're right. (laughs) But you're also wrong. Because God commands it. God commands it of husbands. And if God commands us to do something, he always gives us the ability to do it. This section of scripture, Ephesians 5, that I just read, reflects the results of being filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit replaces our selfishness with His fruit. Which, by the way, begins with love. So, we can make progress in loving our wives sacrificially. We'll never do it perfectly. No one ever does. But with the power of the Holy Spirit and models 
and examples of men like Tom Schrader, we truly can work towards being devoted to our wives with sacrificial love. You know, Tom often makes fun of his selfishness in his first days as a husband. But his selflessness in his last days as Susan's husband has impacted me forever. C.S. Lewis said it this way, the gift love of God desires simply what is best for the beloved. So Tom, thanks for modeling that kind of, of gift love for all of us. My name is uh, Tyler Johnson, and my title now is Lead Pastor of Redemption Church. As many of you, but certainly not all of you know, Redemption Church is a multi-congregational church, and so we have lead pastors of every congregation. Tim Mon is the lead pastor of Redemption Gilbert, and we have him in the other five as well. And then my role is to kind of oversee and give direction to uh, vision, direction, culture setting, kind of a leading of the leaders um, type of deal. And I'm in a unique place um, speaking today because Tom has affected me. There's, there's no one in the world that has affected me more um, than Tom Schrader, both professionally and personally. I married his youngest daughter, Haley, and so I've gotten a unique look, and I don't think anybody else uh, with Tom could say what I can say in that in my past 10 years, he's been my pastor He's been the person that taught me more about the Bible than any other person um, on earth and really set the foundation for all of my theology and those beliefs that we behave out of. So he was my pastor, my teacher, my mentor, my boss, my father-in-law, so truly a father and figure. And then this is the really unique part that I don't think many people can say about their in-laws, one of my best friends in the entire world. There's nobody, and I mean this, there's nobody more uh, that I like to spend time with, look forward to the coffee meetings, look forward to going over to his house. Um, as many of you know, he's, he is certainly the funniest human being I've ever been around in my entire life. And so I've had these moments with Tom where I've always wished I would write down these little one-line zingers that he says in response to things. So recently he's been on a, a new health kick because of his health, and they have him eating crazy stuff. And so he says to me on the phone one day, the man who created plain yogurt clearly hates people. <laughs> it's, it's like that all the time. Susan um, would always, when I'd laugh, because I'd be over at their house laughing hysterically, and she would literally virtually hit me and look me straight in the face, and she was dead serious. And she'd say, stop it now. All you're doing is egging him on. <laughs> stop. But I love that about Tom, and I, I love his life. I, I have more respect for him today than I ever did uh, the first day I started. When I began in ministry um, was about the time that I met Haley. And when I went to Tom to ask her uh, to marry me, he said a lot of things. But one of the things he said um, to me is, you know, Tyler, after he said yes, which was after about four times of asking, I think, um, 
But the fourth time he said, one of my concerns with you um, is that you're really driven. I grew up in a, a coach's home and a teacher's home, and I knew what it was to work hard. That's one of the things my father instilled in me. And his statement to me at that moment was almost a statement of, my fear is you're going to overwork. And the way he said it to me was, my fear about you, Tyler, is that on your way home, you're going to call Brad, which was a guy in my small group at the time, before you call Haley. And I remember that really stuck with me. And then when I got in and I started serving on the staff here at Redemption Gilbert, I started hearing this phrase that Tom would use over and over. Christ died for the church. You don't have to. And I'm a really zealous young, in my young 20s, and I want to change the world. And I'm thinking, but what about all the passages where the Apostle Paul says he's being poured out like a drink offering? But what Tom knew was something that a young 20-something-year-old uh, wouldn't know, and that's human nature. And that the nature of human beings, and it is no different in ministry than it is in the marketplace, is that people are seeking consistently to make a name for themselves. They're seeking consistently to prove themselves. And the reality of human nature is that's true of my seven-year-old son, and that's true of 77-year-old people. Is, and the reality of that is because of sin. One of my greatest... Uh, one of the illustrations I love the most about sin is that sin, what it does to us is like power lines. We're like broken down power lines. And when a power line breaks, what happens? Sparks go everywhere and it, it's almost like it's jumping on the street. Well, why? Because it's looking for its connection. And when sin disconnected us from the one we were made for, namely God, we're constantly looking to find our place so that we can be rooted somewhere. And the way that often manifests itself is seeking to make a name for yourself running after are people approving of me do they like me can I prove myself to myself can I prove myself to other people to my family to my spouse to my kids kids to their parents so this statement has incredible wisdom and incredible truth in it Christ died for the church you don't have to and what that is for all of us is resting in the finished work of Christ it really alludes to this passage um, that I love as well in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 11. I'm going to read through verse 14. The author of the book of Hebrews says this, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. So every day the priest is there offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, and look what he says, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I love that passage because the picture of the priest is that picture of many of us, that daily we're offering things to try to make ourselves right. That's that word in the Bible, justification. We're constantly offering these things, but in reality, they never do it. They never complete us. They never complete other people. They can never take away that fact of sin disconnected us from God. But Christ reconnected it all. That on the cross, he fully defeated that sin, Satan, and death, and said, hey, one day everything's going to be made straight, and I've died and finished the work now so that you're made straight. You are made perfect, this passage says, even while you are consistently being made perfect, right? Because we go, wait a minute, we're not perfect. But at that moment, he made it perfect. And the picture I love is that Christ so finished the work that he sat down. 
that he's in this rested place at the right hand of the Father, knowing that the work is completed. And here's what the brilliance of Tom was. He knew human nature and the propensity to continue to go and go and go, and he knew fundamentally Christ finished the work. Christ died for the church. If he's sitting, why aren't you? There is a rest that comes along with the finished work of Christ that has extraordinary implications that Tom Schrader exemplified because he believed that. Tom says over and over, he said it to us as a congregation for the whole entire time since I've been here since 1997, sitting right up there for the first time I came here, he would say this statement, what you believe affects what you behave. And I watch this truth play out in Tom's life. I watch it personally and professionally, is that Tom, what that resting does, that freedom that comes from the finished work of Christ is it freed him from seeking to make a name for himself. Tom's very pragmatic. He always gets stuff right in our neighborhood. And he always has an uncanny ability to say uh, things that connect with you in ways that maybe a two-hour sermon would not. Recently, after he uh, married Sandy, they headed down. Her hometown is in St. Louis, Missouri. And when he was there, he calls me and he says, you know, in this uh, park in St. Louis, there's a statue of a Civil War figure. And he said, I'm somewhat of a history buff, and I don't even know who this guy is, this statue. I have no clue who he is, but he was significant enough that they made a statue of him. And I'm certain if I don't know who he is, the majority of people don't know who he is, nor do they care. And, he, and then he says this, the only person who cares about that statue is the maintenance man who has to clean the bird dung off the top of its head. <laughs> and this is this lesson he's continually told me, is Tyler, the chasing after making a name for yourself doesn't matter. In the end, nobody cares, nobody notices, and he experienced the freedom from that. He also uh, then had the freedom to be himself, and I would say this, the freedom to go unnoticed. It's astounding to me now in my leadership that takes me throughout the city and in a growing level even around the country, it's astounding to me the number of people that come up to me and mention his name and tell me things that he's done for them, whether it is his teaching that led a significant person that all of us would know to Jesus, his influence to significant people after their spouses had died, which was before he'd even gone through it with Susan, people who've come up to me to say he used his finances to help our family get into a home. He's never said a peep or a word about that because he's free in Christ to go unnoticed. I think it's even true in the life of our church. Now, you may say that's crazy because he sat up here every single Sunday, but there are significant decisions, significant decisions that other lead pastors have looked at Tom Schrader and said, you are a moron. You could have gotten your church bigger. You could have done this. You could have done that. But fundamentally, because he didn't think it was right or in the best interest of the health of our church, he didn't in turn do it. He had the freedom to go unnoticed. He had also enabled him to be free to focus on what mattered. You heard Neil say that. But I reap the benefits every single day of how he raised his daughter. And the thing Haley will say to me over and over is that since she was 10 years old and her dad was in ministry, people would ask her, is he the same guy at home that he is in the pulpit? And she'd say, exactly. And not only that, but this guy never missed a swimming meet. He never missed a game that we were cheering at. He always sacrificed what people would think are the important things for that which is really important that Tom tells us all the time is faith, family, and friends. He was free to do that because he knew Christ died. It's finished. I can be free to focus on what really matters. And then professionally, I watched him numerous times 
have the freedom, because of what he believed, to live and lead in such a way that was others-focused. He leads in a way, because he believes this, uh, this phrase I just heard in the past week and I loved it, he has a non-anxious presence about him. So much so that there were meetings at times I felt like, does he even care? Like, my Lord, seriously. But there's amazing reality, whether you're leading in your family or whether you're leading in the marketplace or wherever it is, that when you have a non-anxious presence, you can actually think rather than just react. You can think. And this church has benefited from that man's non-anxious presence and thinking ability, which doesn't mean he's perfect, but he has it in a way that is absolutely amazing because he cares about what really matters and he doesn't make small hills into big hills. One of his uh, famous statements that he would say to us all the time about majoring on the majors or figuring out the hill to die on was, boys, don't pole vault over mouse turds. <laughs> I love that about Tom. I'll say this in, in closing, what I said at the beginning. Uh, there's no one I'd rather be around. And... I mean this, the longer I go into life, and I'm believing the Bible more and more, is that with age comes more wisdom. I'm only 35 years old. I um, am barely getting gray hair, so I'm not as wise as many of you in regards to the age category, but there are many things that at 24 drove me crazy about Tom that I now look at and go, that's just genius and absolutely uh, brilliant. I know that you experience that with your own kids, but uh, he is an amazing man that has shaped me tremendously um, and his influence, the waves of his influence and the currents of the river of his legacy just are flowing through Redemption Church, not just this congregation. And just so you know, um, they're flowing through this entire city and beyond and for which we're uh, deeply grateful. Thanks. I uh, met Tom uh, 16 years ago. Uh, I was invited by a friend who had moved to Arizona that found East Valley Bible Church and said, hey, you got to check this place out. It's really cool. And, uh, and so I, I randomly got on a plane based on his advice and came to visit. And he said, you need to hang out with this guy named Tom Schrader. Well, I do, uh, one of my pastimes is to study preachers. Uh, not like take notes, it's not that. I, I watch TBN a lot, not because they have anything to say, but I'm always curious why anybody listens. Um, so I just, I take notes. Like, what, why do people hang out here? What, what's, the, what's the winsome part? What are they saying that makes people come back? And, and so I had that kind of in mind when I came out to, uh, to Gilbert. And uh, he suggested I spend a day with Tom. And, uh, and I didn't know anything about priority living. They were trying to explain it to me, and I'd never seen something like that before. And so I was trying to get my brain around that. And so I got in a stranger's car one afternoon. We were headed downtown, I think, to the city hall. He was teaching a Bible study down there, and I was carrying his bag, and he was giving some handouts. And I sat in the back, and I just kind of started doing the mental assessment, like, why is anybody interested? And, and what does he have to say? And, and this has been going on how long? And I was doing all those kinds of questions. And... Um, and I don't think in the, I went to a priority of living and I went to that study, whatever that was. And I still came back kind of just trying to put it in place, you know, what, what's the point of it all? And, and so what I'm going to tell you today is things that I've learned from that moment to this moment that are unique uh, to Gilbert, I think, unique to ministry and clearly unique to Tom. 
And uh, so this is going to be like inside baseball. If I had, if this was a room full of pastors, this would be really good. Uh, but I'm going to bring you close, okay? I'm going to tell you a little secret. Most pastors, worship leaders, associate pastors are messed up with insecurity. Almost everyone I've ever met, and, and I told Tom on Friday night, if, I, if God didn't in his sovereignty bring me to East Valley, I probably wouldn't be in ministry. Because I had spent 10 years working for, for one of these types of people, and I thought, I don't get it. I don't fit. Clearly, it's me. It's a gifted issue. And then I ran run into Tom. And, and so there is, a, there is a brokenness, even in ministry, right? People who are looking to, as Tyler mentioned, their own credibility, their own fame. They're looking for numbers. They're looking to manipulate. They're looking to be something, be somebody, and have you admire them. And, if, and it affects how they teach and what they say, what they don't say. And so to have somebody say, really, I love you enough not to care that much about what you think is an unbelievable anchored truth in what I would call a, a, a security that comes from God. And so uh, we're spoiled, and you go, what is he talking about? Because you have it. We've had it for a long time. And I would say, you know, predominantly, we're really blessed here. I think most of our staff is like that, and there's no, there's no mystery to why because of the influence there. And so um, I think Tom, uh, you know, he's been able uh, in the past to demonstrate the fact that he's secure in his own skin. He used to say a long time ago uh, this phrase, and only a f- few of you will get this. He used to call himself the Dexter Manley of the Bible, okay? Do you know who Dexter Manley is? Former football player, uh, r- all pro, really, really good, but he was illiterate. <laughs> and so he would use that phrase just as a joke saying, you know, listen, there are, there are people who could probably slice and dice the text or the language more than I could. Um, and, and he would say that and have no problem saying that. Most pastors couldn't do that. I remember, uh, it's a funny story. He, he uh, spent a lot of time with students, a lot of time with me in student ministry, and he would go to these summer camps, and we'd make him look like a fool, you know, and he would take that on uh, just for fun. And I know one year he, uh, we decided to have him join the band for a particular song. And uh, I think that's always been a fantasy of his anyway. Um, so uh, we dressed him up like one of the Blues Brothers, hat, black glasses, and uh, we gave him a harmonica. And we were in the back waiting to come out, and there was like seven, 800 kids, and they were freaking out. They were going crazy, and he was too. He's in the back. He was shaking. And I gave him a harmonica. He goes, what am I supposed to do with that? And I said, well, you, real simple, you just blow or suck. And he goes, well, I got half of it. <laughs> That, I know that was about, you know, playing harmonica, but he really, I think he thinks that. I'm being really honest. He's very self-aware. And he, he's not so far removed from where he was in 1980 at 30-whatever years old when God redeemed him out of a whole bunch of mess. And what makes him secure, I think, is a theology of, of God's sovereignty, knowing that God oversees all things and that God had started a work that he promised to finish and it was God's work that he was doing. Remember what, what Paul said, he's confident of this very thing, that he who began the good work that will finish it, carry it out to completion. And I, you could see it in him. Like There's no reason why you would be okay being silly or be okay with, with uh, not having those types of influences or opportunities that Tyler and Neil talked about unless you felt like this thing that God was doing was way bigger than you. And I think he really did. And, and that's why you'd sit in meetings and he wouldn't stress. And he wouldn't try to 
to control it. It's because he believed that God was sovereign. And I think we've learned that. We've learned it in, in, in soteriology and in salvation that God is sovereign over redeeming people, but he's sovereign over our story even after redemption, right? And so he's lived that out. I think the other thing that makes him a, a secure leader is that he's grateful. Nothing transforms people than the attitude of thankfulness. And uh, thankful people are sinners. And what I mean by that is we're all sinners, but unless you really get how deep and dark your story is, you're not as grateful as you could or should be, right? And I think, I think Tom, from the very beginning, was aware of what God did and never got so far removed from, from that part of his life that he couldn't relate to people and understand his weaknesses as, as well. And so uh, he remembered what God did. It's kind of like when Paul was instructing young Timothy, speaking of himself, I kind of think of Tom in this way. Um, I should see myself this way, but I can see it motivating his security. Paul says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love that are found in Christ Jesus. And I think that, that understanding of how wretched we are and how redeemed we are, I mean, once you're accepted by Christ, what's your worries, right? And I think that's, that's where that security comes from. I think, uh, I think uh, he understands personally uh, that all of us are not that important. We, we serve a time and a place for a moment that God wants and, uh, and that God's kingdom has no end and God will finish the work he started and there'll be lots of people in that story and, and, and Tom understands he's one of those people and that's, that's really good and I think that brings about security. There, there's another um, aspect, again, inside baseball. Uh, don't want you to feel too bad about pastors but uh, a lot of them are controlling a lot of them are insecure in, in that sense, too. They, they don't lead open-handedly, and, um, and Tom always did. Uh, Tom was uh, perfect for me, I'd have to say. Um, I was driven, I am driven, and I would, uh, you know, I, I've told you this before, probably make the mistake of making way too many things really, really important, and he would always put it in context and say, maybe it's not that important. And... And so he, would, he could handle somebody like me running around like my head's cut off and yet not micromanage or try to control. He led with what I call open hands. He allowed people to grow and to fail. Do you know what I'm saying? A very healthy environment to grow up in. I, I, didn't, I didn't grow up in East Valley, but I grew out. Do you know what I'm saying? I came here as a 36-year-old man, had done ministry for 10 years, and had perspective, had opinion, had theology or whatever. But there's, there's the, you know, when a young man becomes a, a mature man, he fills out. He takes on skeleton and structure. And, and I think that's what God did here with, with Tom. And he did it with a unique relationship. We're in some ways very similar. In some ways, we couldn't be more different. I mean, we're way different than some. And in those places where we're different, he would treat me like this. Because of that fundamental truth that Jesus taught in Matthew 7, treat other people like you would want to be treated. It's kind of like the theme of how they started the church. We want to start a church that we'd like to go to. We'd like to treat people, have staff, be treated like we'd want to be treated. And so he, he did that. He uh, opened his hands with, with all of us, not just, just me. Um, he encouraged us in our work. Even if the things we were doing were so small in scope, they didn't really matter to the whole. 
they were small and important to me or important to this little group or whatever, and he would, he would encourage that. He, he participated in ways that nobody saw and probably nobody cared. Um, 14 years, he came to summer camp and taught six to seven messages in, uh, in a context I don't think he was necessarily that comfortable in, but got comfortable in. He played basketball with your children and their friends. He hung out at a game field, and he looked silly and, and did things because he was communicating the gospel, and, and those things, um, and then to support that group of people, some, you know, by this time, hundreds of volunteers who were discipling students, which is a really incredible thing. And I suppose more than any other way to demonstrate his open-handedness would be this transition we're talking about, we're in the midst of. Um, he's not done. He can still teach. Uh, he can still, he's going to be invited everywhere. Um, he, is, he is healthy, he's doing well, he could still do it. But in, in his mind, he thought, and, and, and I believe that he prayed this up, that the timing was right. And so nothing communicates more the open-handedness, um, lack of micromanaging part of his leadership than this transition. You know, he said many years ago about thinking about the transition, and I suppose learning lessons from churches around us in our, in our valley and maybe from churches around the country, um, that most of them don't transition at all, and they talk about what they used to be. Every, every church has a moment in the sun where they, 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 you read their history and you go, remember when we were this and we did that and we were known for this and we had our most attendance that or whatever. And, and I think from the very beginning, Tom saw that as something that was really disappointing. Churches shouldn't have one moment. They should have lots of moments if Jesus is the king. And so I think he thought that way from the very beginning. So he thought about transition before anybody was thinking about transition here. And, and he, w- he would say this, they're, we're either going to successfully give it away to the next generation or they're going to have to pry it from our dead cold hands because that's the diff- those are the options that you see out there. And so, you know, from a, him forming a, a leadership team, him, uh, we have a very... Um, young staff comparatively. We have young men who want to work for Redemption Church, want to be grown up and raised up and trained up in Redemption Church. And that's because it's been uh, dealt with in an open-handed fashion. People can find their giftedness and their voice in the midst of a whole bunch of different ones. And, and uh, so this transition represents that. Um, and, and Redemption Church represents that. We could have stayed East Valley Bible Church and had great ministry we had a great staff, a lot of preachers, but somehow the idea of having a gospel-centered, outward-focused church cover the state of Arizona, which is now six congregations and growing, right? Three other autonomous church plants, all within the last five years, where the experts would say, never, never ever do that. That's too much. It costs too much of leaders, costs too much of money, costs too much of energy, and yet God has done that. And that, that open-handedness of saying something bigger can happen out of this means that, that Gilbert isn't going to be known for a heyday one day. It has the opportunity for lots of days. And uh, that's because of, of how God has shaped and gifted Tom. And so um, I could say lots of things about what I've learned. Uh, those are a handful that, that uh, we as a church probably take for granted but should be very thankful. So, Tom, thank you very, very much. It'll get better. Thank you very much.
Thank you. I, I know I speak for all of you when I say that's enough. Uh, I, I, I felt that way sitting there. Uh, and the irony, I, 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 when I got up this morning, about every day, Sandy swims almost every morning and they're outside. And so I'll check the weather and then I'll send her a text, good morning with the weather. It's stupid, but I do it. So this morning it was 21 degrees in Gilbert. And I couldn't help but laugh at all the people that said, it'll be a cold day in hell when I go to a Tom Schrader Appreciation Day. <laughs> it's all I could think of this morning. I found myself laughing. You know, God has a sense of humor. We had an event on Friday night that had some of our staff and friends from around, really, the city there. And, and it was a great night. And, and uh, Tyler had selected four or five guys to speak that represented kind of different aspects of my life, and then an open mic. And it really, I said that, it is. It is like going to your funeral without having to, to die, to, to do it, and so to listen to it. And when I was done, I, I was reflecting in the midst of this. I went home uh, a few years ago. I think it was my dad's retirement. It might not have. It was something they were honoring my dad. And, and I was sitting with my brothers. I have three brothers. And the first person got up and, and said, uh, Jim and I started at the bank at the same time. He was an amazing man. And he was so kind, but so very, very patient with me. And he sat down, and the next guy got up and said, I uh, was new at the bank and needed a mentor, and somebody told me to get a hold of Jim, and I did, and he's an amazing man, very, very patient with me. And then his administrative assistant got up and said, uh, Jim was uh, just an amazing man, amazing man to work with, and uh, we had a whole new system at the bank in the last four or five years, and I'm the slowest to pick it up. And He's been very, very patient to me. And I leaned over to my brother, and I said, who, who are these people talking about? Um, <laughs> there are, it depends on how you count, but, but I, I looked it up the other day. There are one million uh, 9,013 words in the English language. If I gave you 1,009,012 choices, patience would have never been the word that you would have associated with my father. Uh, but at moments like this, you tend, I think, to speak that way. So there are some of you who are laughing on the outside and screaming for equal time right now. And I, and I, and I know that, and I can live with that, and, but that's okay. That's part of it. One of the things that happened the other night, and it was, it was a great moment for me, was somebody said, and, and I assume trying to be funny or clever or both, or, or speaking the truth, they said, I hope this whole thing doesn't go to your head. And just the opposite is what happened the other night. I looked around the room and I was reminded that uh, though I had a front row seat of what God did at East Valley Bible Church, Redemption Gilbert, Property Living, and a lot of other things, it was not me. There was, a, there was always an us to it. I had a chance maybe to be on the bus and I guess maybe drive the bus, but there was always a, a group with it. And you see the, the guys on the platform, uh, God brought together an amazing staff and team over the years. Uh, you all, we can't pull off a Sunday without hundreds of you. And so over 22 years, there are many, many, many of you that we thank. And, and you need to know there are many, many, many who worked as hard as you, as committed as you, gave as much as you. And for whatever reason, maybe to, to join one of our church plants or maybe a little bit disgruntled with what's going on or for whatever reason have left. And yet they leave a strong, powerful legacy that has been powerful uh, uh, here at the church for what God's used. There is a, a group that is, uh, I guess you kind of intuitively know if you know the Bible, uh, that you would assume are at the core of the church, and they are, uh, especially in the early, early days. Now we're the elders, 
Uh, those early days were very difficult. None of us had a church background to speak of, certainly not an organizational background. And we were literally uh, operating and running the church, the elder board. And there were Dave Moore and, and uh, Haskell Kiner and Roger Wallen was involved in that, uh, Chuck Holmes. And there's been guys that have come along the way, Jim Scores, uh, Howard Morrison. And uh, to single out one of those guys might on the surface to you seem unfair, but it's totally appropriate. The, the guy that's been here from the beginning, in fact, he was part of my demise at the other church, to be honest with you, uh, was Jerry Smith. And Jerry's been here from the get-go, still is on the elder board. Uh, he has served in so many different capacities. He's been, for me, the go-to guy. Uh, I am, uh, by nature, not a real confrontational guy. Uh, my style is hands-off. Some of that is out of conviction. Some of it's probably out of laziness. But, but Jerry is the guy that, that has, at every step, with Joey's support and Jerry's involvement, he's done the hard task, and you reap the benefit of that to this very day. So will you help me? Jerry's here. Will you help me just thank Jerry for everything that he's The question, and I've had like a half a dozen people today, and, and, and it's a little bit frustrating, but I also understand it. I've had so many people say, what are you going to do now? With all your time is kind of the implication. And I'm like a junior high boy. I'm, uh, I don't know. Uh, but I, do, I don't know exactly what we're going to do. My, uh, and this may seem odd, but I've become uh, a, a bigger fan of Redemption Church than when we started. When we started, I had a vision of what I thought it might be. But now I've had the, the chance to see it and know that it's not even the tip of the iceberg, but the tip of the tip of the iceberg to go to the other campuses. Uh, to see how God has used redemption and, and a lot of redemption Gilbert to uh, go to the other campuses and see hundreds of people who were involved here who are now serving at the campuses that are touching people all over that we would never reach as one campus. To walk in the bilingual campus in, uh, in East Mesa, to see the families there, to see the, the people that I don't even know that will express their gratitude, not just to me, but to us and how powerful that is. They go up to Flagstaff, which is just a treat. And God has given us a location there. I hope we can. We just signed a long. I got all excited in a meeting the other day because they said we've signed a long-term lease for the facility in Flagstaff. And I was all excited because uh, we're very vulnerable there with that location. And then they said the length of the lease was six months. It doesn't seem very long-term <laughs> if you're young. Six months is a long term, I guess. But, but Flagstaff is an amazing opportunity there. And what God's beginning to do around the valley. And I've never been, I don't, I, don't, I don't think, if I'm totally honest, I don't think I've ever been motivated by money, though I like it. It's cost my friends a great deal of money to keep me in poverty. That's what I like to say. <laughs> but I've never been motivated by money, perhaps, or power. But I like influence. I like the ability to be able to sit down with people and, and shape the way they think and the way they act. And God's uh, provided us an opportunity to uh, really impact some of the churches around town in a major way. We've got a great two weeks from today, I'll be in the pulpit at Scottsdale Bible Church, which is a great opportunity for me in a relationship that we've forged there. So part of whatever the future is has with it the idea of influence. Uh, I'm not sure in specifics, but I, I know it will include uh, continuing to serve on the redemption team here, the leadership team, 
uh, teaching as God opens opportunities. We'll continue to do priority living, so I'll teach here on Wednesday morning and then downtown on Thursday morning and Thursday noon. Uh, and God's done something. Uh, if, if I were to, to begin to, to really isolate people and, and thank them, there are three people specifically that I want to acknowledge in the growth of the church. Uh, two of them will be here today. Uh, one won't. Sarah was here this morning. Uh, Haley will be here tonight. And, and the girls were amazing. I, I, I don't know. And there's no way you could understand it. I didn't. How difficult the church and the pastor and the role would be on the kids, how hard it would be on them, the expectations that were placed on them. And I used to tell them, these are expectations that would be placed on any kid, frankly, not just you because of your position. And uh, Haley was 8, 9, 10, Sarah 10, 11, 12, whenever the church started. And to watch them grow and to, and to watch them process some of the times that are great. It's always fun. Look back at some of the pictures and they're at the groundbreaking and they're out there in the tractor and those are great times. But there are other times when you're walking around and things aren't as much fun. And to see how God not just protected them, but to see them both involved in the church today. It happens to be here at, at, uh, in the Redemption Churches. But to see them involved to see them with their husbands, with Tim and with Tyler and with their kids. It's just a great moment. And uh, God, and I, and I think they've learned the, the power and the beauty of, of the church and serving in the church. I have so many friends who, whose families seem the worse off for the job, which doesn't make sense to me. So I would always tell the girls, you know, I can do the stuff I do with you because of the freedom of the church. And then the person who will not be here today would be Susan. I came home one day, and we had left a previous church, and we were trying to find a place to go to church. And so I was going. She said, you go, you know, I, I, I can't just go to four of these services every Sunday. But she would go to one, and then she would go home, and she'd with the kids or whatever. So I came home. I said, listen, I think, I think I'm going to start a church, get some guys and start a church. And she said, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. I, I'm not doing that. We just had a tough experience, particularly hard on her. And didn't know. And I said, okay. So a couple of weeks later, I said, I, I, I still think we need to do this. And she said, all right, here's, here's the deal. I'll do it and I'll support you and I'll encourage you, but I'm not working in children's ministry. <laughs> and I said, okay, that's fine. That's fine. And then she was essentially at the core team that started the children's ministry. I said, that, the bad news is that's where we're going to need you right away. And then she said, all right, but no women's ministry. And then she led that. And what she did and she understood is that this was going to be hard. And she always created an environment that was just a, just a peaceful environment. Uh, she absorbed the blows. I remember I, I got a, a, a cassette. Tape. There, was, there was something that happened. It had to do with washing people's feet and the service. And that's why I'm saying this is the counterbalance. And a guy wrote me a long letter, and he said, I could never imagine you humbling yourself. It, was, it had a lot of, it wasn't, it wasn't fan mail. <laughs> and, and, and there was a cassette tape in it, and I sat it down, and I had to go somewhere. And I came back. I said, where's that tape? I want to listen to it. She said, no, I listened to it. And then it was all, it was all in the garbage can. She just pulled all the stuff out and then ripped the thing off. She said, you don't need to hear stuff like that. And it was just amazing. This is an amazing tribute to her. And somebody the other day, and I think it was Jerry, I'm not sure, said, said to me, uh, rarely does a man find a, a great wife like you've had 
but now you have two of them. And, and at just the right time, God brought Sandy into this segment of my life. She's a, a, a strategic planner uh, just by nature. Uh, she is asking incessantly questions about what do you see here? How do we do this? And, and uh, just an amazing gift for this time. So I, I appreciate your concern and your questions. Uh, we'll continue to serve in all the roles here in a priority living, but beyond that, we're just kind of figuring life out. I go back to this passage all the time. Peter's talking and delivering a message. It's Acts 13, 36, and he speaks of David. He said, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, that means died, and, lay, and was laid with his father and saw corruption, his body decayed. Well, I think I've served my purpose of God here in the role I've been in. I don't think I'm ready uh, to die quite yet. I think there's a little tread left on the tire. And uh, I, I'm excited to see what, what God is going to do, and, and you get to be a part of, of that as well. A special thanks to all of you who have made this a, an amazing time. Some of you have been here for a long, long time. Uh, some of you newer. All of you have made it a privilege to, to be able to teach on Sunday, um, to watch. I, was, we were, I did a wedding the other day. I don't do many weddings. I did a wedding the other day, and there was a, a guy there, and Sandy and I were, were talking, and it was time to take pictures. And, and uh, this guy had been through this service, so he knew what I did. He said, what do you like best about your job? Well, that was an interesting question. And, and I didn't want to engage in a whole bunch of stuff, but I said, I think my biggest joy is to watch how, how God changes people, how people change. And, and, to, and to watch you all individually and us collectively grow and to see where we were 22 years ago and how we still to this day take the word of God very, very, very seriously. But we also understand grace isn't just for salvation, but it's for living. So thank you on this special day. Thank you for making... Uh, this is just an amazing time. And I, I, like you, I look forward to see what God's going to do in our future. So thank you very much. Uh, my applause to you. Thank you very much. Well, I'm gonna, we're going to take a, a moment and uh, give some gifts to Tom. I'm going to invite the elders and the pastors. Who this are is here. the best part of the day. Yeah, yeah. We get to do it four times. So <laughs> come on up, guys. Um, Neil's going to present it, and then we'll spend some time praying, and uh, it'll be our time. So uh, it's really a tough thing to do to figure out how do you express appreciation in a physical way with a gift or gifts for all of the service that Tom has given to us as, as a church. So uh, certainly got the family involved, talked to Sandy and Sarah and Haley, and, and uh, got some great ideas. So I'd like to just take a moment and present those uh, very special gifts. The very first one is a is a requisition uh, to a sculptor. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We're going to ask him <laughs> to build a statue. statue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the poor guy that's got to clean that every day. <laughs> Who is this? So that's the very first gift. For the, oh, my gosh. That would be awesome. <laughs> Actually, the very first gift is, is an Iowa football game. We're giving you Tom know, uh, a Iowa Hawkeye football yeah. game yeah. tickets. 
four tickets with uh, round-trip airfare for four, as well as uh, accommodations at the Black Hawk Hotel or hotel of, of his choice. And uh, he gets to choose who he wants to take with him. I, I made the mistake of assuming at the first service that uh, he was going to take the girls uh, along, but that may not be true. So we were kind of we were kind of <laughs> all jockeying, all of nice to me. jockeying for that position, right? <laughs> the second gift is uh, is a 15-day Hawaiian cruise. Uh, there you go. They like that better than the Iowa game. The ladies seem to have responded yeah, the ladies to that like a little that better than the football game. game yeah. <laughs> uh, celebrity cruises, uh, concierge balcony, uh, uh, departing San Diego on March 4th, returning on March 19th, and airfare and uh, transfers are included with that. So that's um, a very special that's a good gift, gift as well. And then, and then finally, you know, Tom, as he was speaking, uh, mentioned that money is not a real big motivational uh, factor for him as he served in ministry, and that... I can attest to the fact that that's true. Uh, most of you don't know that uh, over his entire career as the senior pastor, leader of uh, East Valley Bible Church and then Redemption Church, Tom never took a salary. Uh, he received a housing allowance, which was just pretty meager, and uh, saved the church a, a, an awful lot of money. Uh, How much? Uh, <laughs> Let's put a number on it. <laughs> We've accumulated way over the more years. than this. <laughs> <laughs> but as a token of our appreciation, small token for the yeah, fact small that, token. that he <laughs> small, small token that he saved us all that money over these years. Um, although funny. this is not a retirement for Tom, it is a redeployment. Uh, we wanted to make sure that his uh, retirement fund. Uh, had a little bit extra in it to uh, pre help prepare him for the time when he does finally completely slow down and be able to enjoy his time. So from this <laughs> gift is uh, from the elders, staff of Redemption Gilbert and Redemption Church as a whole, just as a small way of saying how much we appreciate that all Tom has done Thank for us. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that very much. Guys, thanks. Put them all back here. One other thing before I pray and before Tom leads us in communion is uh, he's going to be over in the, in the commons when we're done, just kind of a reception line. You meet and greet and talk and eat and all the stuff that happens in one of those. So um, let me pray and thank God for what he's done. God, I thank you so much for your faithfulness, for your grace and mercy. God, I thank you for um, uh, what you did in 1980 to redeem him. I thank you, God, for the gifts that you gave him, the unique way that you made him. I thank you, God, that uh, he has faith, uh, faithfully proclaimed your word here for 22 years and six and seven services sometimes of uh, <clears throat> delivering that. And, God, I thank you for the things that he's taught us by uh, that teaching as well as his life and example. God, I thank you for um, his family and his continued influence here and and around the valley. God, I pray in this redeployment time that you would use him in even ways he hasn't imagined yet and uh, that you, again, like you already have, uh, you would get all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank Amen. you. Amen. Thank you.